Hello, hello, and welcome back to APIs You Won't Hate. I am your co-host today, Mike Bifulco, one of the, uh, I guess, founders of APIs You Won't Hate, and I'm hanging out with uh, my good pal, Phil Sturgeon. Phil, good morning. How are you today? Hello. I actually know where I am today. Usually you ask me where I am, and I'm like, yeah. today I'm in Bristol, and it's lovely, and I'm having a great time. How are you doing? There we go. I'm doing great, man. It's uh, it's good to see you. Definitely like one of these nice, proper spring mornings over here while we're recording. Of course, you know, when it releases, it could be uh, anything weather-wise and, and wherever you are. But yeah, having a nice morning over here. Um, and I'm, I'm happy today we're going to get to uh, sit and meet and chat with our new friend here, uh, Ed Freifogel. Uh, Ed, thanks so much for joining us. I um, appreciate you being here. You are working on a project called OpenCage, among other things. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are now. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on the show. I am a longtime listener, a longtime API practitioner. Um, yeah, so the main project I work on is a company called OpenCage. We've been doing that now for about eight years. Uh, it's a geocoding API. So we offer forward and reverse geocoding. For those that don't know, forward geocoding is you have an address or, or let's say a, some sort of text string that refers to a location, and you want to know the geographic coordinates of that. And reverse is the opposite. You have you have geographic coordinates, and you want to know the the location description. Uh, and that's what we do. That, uh, that's it. That that uh, it sounds like a little, but actually, it keeps us quite busy. Um, we, we, I guess, the differentiator of our service is that we do this only with open data. So we can talk a bit about exactly what open data is. But uh, listeners may have heard of projects like OpenStreetMap. It's probably one of the most famous um, open data sources. We, we're, we're heavily involved in the OpenStreetMap community, but also there are other open data projects as well. Um, yeah, so, so happy to go deep on all of that and talk about kind of the challenges of, of running an API-based business, particularly what, I mean, our biggest competitor is Google Maps. You might have heard of them. It's a right. yeah, sure. small company out of California. Yeah. yeah. So um, uh, I'm, I'm kind of curious to hear the genesis of OpenCage. So where did the need come from and how long ago did you start building it? Well, we, we, I, I originally had a, another business. I was co-founder of a business many years ago. This is, this is really going to date me, but um, around 2005, 2006, Google Maps came out. And for the first time, this, you had the amazing phenomenon that you could put points on a map. Right, and you could move the map around. I don't, I don't know if you remember this. I mean, kids today assume this was all how it always worked, but that wasn't the case. Uh, and so this was a huge innovation. And so we, um, like many other people, had the idea that we would put use this in the, in the real estate space. And so we built a a real estate search engine, kind of a a meta search engine where we would aggregate all the different real estate listings from different uh, sites. And started a company to do that. Ran that company for about ten years, based in London. But we served ten different markets, um, and uh, you know, did quite well. Uh, anyway, one of the key challenges there is, of course, you have to geocode. So we typically we would get the the property listings as addresses, and to put them on the map, you need the longitude and latitude. And so we would start, you know, figuring out ways to do that using external APIs, trying to use our own software. Um, and it was challenging. I mean, some countries, some countries, it's very easy. For example, in the UK, you, if you have very precise postcodes, uh, some countries have very good address data. So we were also serving markets like Brazil and India, the much less good data there. Um, I should also mention that while this was going on, those the ten years that I ran that company was also coincided with the exact the founding of OpenStreetMap in London, which which initially started in two thousand four. 
and and then kind of really took off. And so we were very active kind of in that scene, going going to some of the, the pub meetups and things like that. So got to know this space better and better. Um, anyway, fast forward to 2015, we eventually sold this real estate business to one of our competitors. Um, but in the years leading up to that, in like from like 2013 or so, some of our customers, our customers were big media companies in these different markets. And some of them had said, how, how do you guys do the geocoding? How do you, you know? And so um, we said, well, we have this internal technology. And, and basically they asked us if they could use it. And so we kind of thought, let's spin this off as a as its own project. And we did that under the name OpenCage. Um, but it was just really still very much in fledgling form when the acquisition happened. So it was very much a beta product. Uh, so the buyer was not interested in that. And so myself and, and one of my colleagues at the old business, he, he and I became the co-founders of OpenCage and we, we took it over when the real estate business was sold. And we've been running it ever since. So, so it's been going now since 2015. Slow but steady uh, growth. You know, the, there's there is a lot of demand for geocoding. We can we can talk a bit about that about why that is. But um, yeah, and and we've been it, it's 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 our it's a you know it, it pays the rent. So that's what. We... Yeah, sure, no doubt. I think it's really interesting to be a serial co-founder and your your second um, company is essentially the brainchild of the first company, uh, kind of like a a bit that broke off and, and became its own success story. That's super interesting. Um, have you found that along the way, um, the things you learned building your first company, the real estate search engine, sort of helped to inform what you're doing now? Well, the two the two companies were quite different in that. And, when they, and they say this is quite common, right? For the second business, you want to do the exact, you're so fed up with all the problems of the first business, you want to do the exact opposite. And And that was kind of the case with us as well in that, the first business, first of all, it was a much more of a traditional startup in that we, you know, we had external funding. We eventually had about 20 employees. Um, it was kind of more your traditional startup. Uh, but our customers were mainly big media companies. So the people who run the big uh, real estate websites of the world. Which on the one hand was good because they were they would pay us a lot, but, but it was, you know, very one-off, bespoke kind of deals, long negotiations, that kind of thing. With with OpenCage, our business, particularly in the beginning, was much more self-service. You just come to the website and stick a credit card in, and you can start geocoding. Um, much less uh, kind of uh, customer interaction. Um, very tight. I mean, one that one of the reasons we liked being an API business is much less emphasis on. Um, user interface. I mean, of course the API needs to have a good interface, but you don't need to spend, you don't need to have a, spend all your time designing and things like that. And much less SEO susceptible. Our first business was very dependent on SEO, which when it's great, it's great. And when it's bad, it's very bad. Um, so we kind of went exactly in the opposite direction of that. Um, and I, and, and it's, a, there's no funding, there's no external funding. It's, it's just purely funded from profits and from our, in the beginning from our own savings and things um, from selling the first business. But um, so kind of the opposite in many regards. Uh, sure. So yeah, this by by now this may feel like an obvious thing to you and maybe to the people listening to this, but uh, I'm I'm curious what your has your value proposition changed as um, the years have gone from hey this is an alternative to Google Maps to hey this is 
you know, maybe the first place you should turn or something like that. Why, why were people looking at alternatives to Google Maps to begin with? Well, so really we have, we have kind of three competitors. So, so one competitor is definitely Google Maps. Google Maps is the giant in the space. There are a few other big um, proprietary players. There's a company called Here. Basically, they do kind of car navigation services. And typically, their model is that they they collect their own data. You know, Google has their cars driving around and things like that. Um, and it, it, it's the data is theirs. They they and they run the whole system. And then, if you want to use their data, you have to, of course, pay them. In some cases, quite a lot. But also, you have to agree to their terms and conditions, which can be quite onerous. Um, particularly around attribution, about how long you can store the data. Um, can you keep storing the data after you, if you stop being a customer, for example? Um, you know, many, many of these players make you delete the data if you ever stop, which, um, but a big issue, of course, is cost. Um, so Google charges quite a lot, um, which, which they need to, to justify because they have all these teams collecting data, things like that. At the other, and that's not just, that's not just like vendor lock-in, that's vendor blackmail. It's like if you try and leave us, you have to delete correct, your database. Correct, correct. That's not, um, that's not cool. To, to their credit, uh, I mean, the, technically the product is, of course, quite good. Um, and, and because of their dominant position in, in the consumer mindset, uh, you know, the database does get updated. I mean, the first thing someone does if they open a new business is update their listing on Google Maps because otherwise they won't be found. So... Um, so what I always tell people is like, look, if, if you want, you know, if, if you feel Google is the best and you want to pay for that, then they go for that, you know, uh, but, but you're going to pay a lot and you're going to have to agree to their terms and conditions. If you want good enough at a radically more affordable price, we are your choice. Okay. Um, and we're able to do that because we use the open data, but that does open a new um, competitor. So, and, and, and that, that competitor is companies doing it themselves in-house. So, so we, we often that's kind of what we're competing with. If people are like, well, I need a lot of geocoding, let me do it myself. And that's a difficult argument to have with people. Obviously, engineers like to build it themselves. They like to have their own traced, train set to play with. Those people typically become our best customers once they realize it's a freaking nightmare to run it yourself. Um, or also, when, when, you know, maybe the, the guy who ran it um, leaves the company or whatever, you know, and then, you know, some new person has to maintain it. And they're like, actually, this is complex. One, one, one point to make there that in one way that I guess we're different than probably many of the APIs that you've covered here on the show or that people think about is um, we, there really are two pieces to our system. One is, of course, the software, like any other API. But secondly, it's the data. The data is changing all the time. And because the world is changing all the time. So the OpenStreetMap gets about four to six million edits per day. Um, so, so this is kind of a living creature uh, and that always needs to stay updated. So the, there is, and, and the volume of data, of course, is massive. So this is kind of a DevOps challenge if, you know, for, for, to stay on top of that. And it's not something where, you, you know, it's not you just, you install it and then you forget it and, um, you know, maybe once every six months you upgrade to a new version or something. It's not like that. Um, so, uh, so that's why many, many people then turn to experts like ourselves to, to, to handle that for them. Of course. Yeah. So behind the scenes, then I get, I would imagine this is me just uh, wagering, I guess 
that you're probably not living in the world of um, a AWS lambdas and things like that. Are you running like a mess of servers and data centers all over the place? Yeah, we have our own servers. We don't we don't use um, AWS or any other cloud provider. We we're very happy with Hetzner. I, I don't know if you're familiar with Hetzner in Germany. Uh, not no, not no. just in Germany, they have other locations as well, but but they're very good. Um, but yeah, we have our own dedicated servers at multiple locations, of course. Um, it'd be just cost-wise, it wouldn't make sense. I mean, with that volume of data, yeah. there's no way you can do it cost-effectively. And this is actually one of the arguments I make when I, when people are like, oh, we'll do it ourselves. I'm like, if you do the math, it's going to be very difficult for you to do it cheaper than letting us do it for you. Certainly, yeah. Yeah. So when you started building the product, when OpenCage was born, um, I'd imagine there was probably some basic use cases in mind, uh, right? And, you know, beyond maybe just forward and reverse geocoding, was there like, were there certain languages or, um, I don't know, was there um, a Venn diagram of customers you were after versus customers you were not after for the uh, API? Well, it's very interesting because uh, there are many, many different types of geocoding and many different use cases. And one of the challenges that we face is people come to our service and they're very kind of fixated on their way, what they need. And they think, you know, that's the only way to geocode. So many, many people think only of forward geocoding. They don't think of reverse geocoding, which reverse geocoding is actually massive because it's um, kind of the vehicle tracking space. Um, basically, the cost of the cost of a tracking device and the accuracy of a tracking device and the performance of a tracking device in terms of battery life and things have gotten so much better, right? So, um, more and more things have tracking devices. You know, obviously vehicles, but you know, bikes and things. So, um, so you know, so there's more and more data being being generated there. But the other point is then thinking about. You know, of course, if you send us some coordinates or you send us an address, we can return the opposite. But what we also do now is um, kind of cross-link this with other data sets. So there are many, many different ways to refer to locations and many different types of statistical codes, you know, I, I, ranging from the obvious ones like ISO country codes to, but like all these things, like in the EU, there's a thing called nuts codes, which is a way that people refer to locations or um, in the US, you have FIPS codes. Um, all kinds of other relevant information. For example, you might ask, you know, what time zone is this location in? And and so we have tons of different uh, data sets that we kind of cross-reference and thus make it simpler for developers so that usually geocoding is only the very, very first piece or, or a tiny piece in a data processing chain. Okay, so in some sort of ETL system or whatever. And... So the next step then is, okay, now I got the coordinates. Now I need to feed that into this other data set. So, so we're trying to do things like that for the developer so that they don't need to, you know, take the time to do that. So, um, right. Yeah, I was uh, playing around in your um, demo for the geocoding API uh, earlier and was kind of struck by the amount of information that comes back. Like for, for folks listening to this, I think you should challenge yourself to think of what would happen, what you would expect back from an API if you typed in your home address, for example, or your office address, uh, and asked it to return geocode information to you. To be honest with you, a few things came to mind for me, which are probably obvious, latitude, longitude, country, and things like that. But the the shock that I had was that there's a breadth of information that uh, OpenCage returns that are like really thoughtful things that uh, obviously make sense, but once you see them, they make sense, right? Like uh, time for sunrise and sunset what flag emoji to use for that particular location, uh, what country it's in, things like regions and things like that, that are just like, there's so much information about a given 
you know, dot on a map uh, that I can see this um, fulfilling lots and lots of use cases. And I can imagine that uh, as time has gone on, you've added lots of features here that uh, help a lot of people get things done without having to go from one API to the next to the next to chain this all together. Yeah, we, we've expanded it quite a bit over the years. Um, but yeah, it's the most obvious example, Mike, uh, you're in the US, right? So if someone types in a US address, uh, US addresses do not contain the county. But they very often you may want right. to know which county I'm in. Uh, so like, this gets into some of the use cases that we didn't quite anticipate. So for example, um, payment providers. So let's imagine if a transaction happens in a certain county, maybe then they need to assess a different tax rate. For example, um, so things like that, uh, where a, we, you know humans have developed almost an infinite number of ways to divide the world up and categorize it and 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 um, and talk about it and assign codes to it and whatever and and the, with tons of weird historical anomalies, you know, and and so that's that chaos, you know, th that that's kind of what we try to simplify and present a clean, obvious interface to. Um, I mean, Phil, you're in the UK, which, in my opinion, having spent ten years living in the UK, uh, is possibly the most insane country on earth in terms of admin hierarchies. And I mean, it starts it starts even yeah, it starts even with the fact that which country are you in, right? I mean, because. Because, you know, so you could say, like, oh, I'm in the UK. And they're like, no, I'm in England. No, or no, I'm in, like, is Wales a country? Is it not a country? Exactly. We're a country of countries. And that right, right off the bat is fucking ridiculous. So, <laughs> so. Um, yeah, absolutely. There's, I, I used to work, I've, I've worked with um, geocoding and reverse geocoding a bunch of different times for the last couple of jobs. I mean, uh, all the rage doing all the solo mo stuff in New York. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was working for a, a carpooling company where we had these really weird, scenarios like most people just think i would like to type in the address that i'm going to for work and then we'll see if anyone's going along with me should be easy but some of these ridiculously rich corporate offices were like there was one there was one road where the road was one the word so it was like one pepsi drive or whatever it was and so people were typing in the number one pepsi drive which doesn't exist because it's actually a, a one one um and so the building was number one word one pepsi drive and there's all these weird things so I have noticed that at least um, at least your products will kind of take a guess at a few different levels of, of likely result. And so if you don't match on the first attempt, it will kind of try and show you some other things. Like I just put in my address and one of the suggestions was, did you mean Bristol? It found my house, but it also knows the city in different types of place. So it gives you different things you can play with for different confidence levels, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah. And I mean, there's a lot going on. I mean, first of all, duplicate place names, typos. Um... I mean, in the UK, many, many people, they don't use the number zero. They say like, oh, my phone number is 076. They use O. So then when they type, just subconsciously, they type O instead of zero, right? And, and I mean, even though intuitively they probably know it's a zero. So all kinds of things like sure. this about the way people think about numbers and things. And, and this is before we even get into the absolute madness of postcodes. Um, uh, and then... And then this is before, you know, at the UK, to its credit, I mean, you know, many countries are, are at least have postcodes. Some countries don't have postcodes. Some countries don't have addresses at all. Very common. Uh, you know, most of the world does not have an address. And they use kind of just landmarks and things. So, it, I mean, this is a, from a technical standpoint, this is a product you can work on, you know, easily for the rest of my life. I can work on geocoding. There's, there's no shortage of, of weird cases and, 
and and the big issue is a lot of the data that people have that they want to have geocoded is just gibberish you know it's bad and um you know so we it's a lot of working on data cleansing frankly so that's awesome i mean what one question I've got for you. I was going back through, I was working on the uh, Surviving Other People's APIs book, um, self-plugging on the podcast, because might as well. And one of the things I remember was how how many different geocoding services have shut down. Like every time I find one that I like that's not Google, it ends up vanishing. And I found the list of ones that was, um, uh, where is it? Uh, Yahoo Place Finder, that was really great. Um, Algolia Places vanished. Simple Geo got bought out by Urban Airship and then just closed down and rolled into their marketing platform. Um, what's keeping yours going when other ones seem to be vanishing? Well, first of all, Phil, I'm not going to apologize. We're going to put them all out of business one after another. So <laughs> it was you. It um, was, you did it. You know, you can tell Google we're gunning for him. Um, <laughs> no, well, first of all, I will say I do think we have a bit of an advantage of not having investors, right? I think many of the business, some of the businesses you mentioned, you know, have taken lots of funding, and so they're then under a time pressure to kind of provide a return right. on investment on that funding. And it's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, one of the challenges with geocoding, you know, I can I can sit here and tell you lots of funny stories about geography and weird use cases or whatever. And if you do not need geocoding, you are not going to buy geocoding from me, right? It doesn't matter whether you like me, you like my website. Like, it's very difficult to induce demand for geocoding. So... I, what I have to do is kind of be present in the market and wait until you have a geocoding project. And then hopefully at that point, you're aware of me, you have a good opinion of me, and, and then you come and test out my service and hopefully we do a good job and then you become a customer. But um, yeah. but the point is that it's, it's very difficult. We've been fortunate that we could go slow, so to speak. And we weren't under pressure to, to very quickly um, provide, provide a return for any kind of investors. Another point is, uh, I mean, Algolia, for example, they, uh, I think you're talking about their places search, which shut down a while back. Um, so, so again, the, the, within the realm of forward geocoding, there are kind of different things. There's what we call geocoding, which is you have a complete address and you want to know the location. But I think what you're thinking, talking about more is kind of people have like a restaurant name or they want kind of an auto suggest on a page or whatever. And this is really challenging. The challenging part there is not the technology. The challenging part is having the database. Having a database of all the restaurants worldwide is almost impossible. And, and how do you keep that up to date? And, and this is where someone like Google shines, of course, because they have the consumer demand, because they have you know, a billion people walking around with Android phones that they're collecting data off of. It's going to be difficult for a startup to compete in that space in terms of how do you get this data. Um, and keep it up to date. I mean, now with COVID, you know, we saw this huge uh, dying off of many businesses. So instantly, everyone's database was very out of date, right? And and, yeah. and you know, of course, we try to to we rely on the the open data community, particularly OpenStreetMap, and and we do our best to give back and support that community. But you know, there are some areas where OpenStreetMap is excellent. <laughs> there are others where certainly with transient things like restaurants and stores that come and go very quickly or might be seasonal it's a challenge i mean there are even oh, sorry, there are even businesses um that just help big companies kind of keep their location data up to date and get it out <laughs> I, I i'm friends with the guy he's the founder of a company in london called localistico and all they do is help these 
mega organizations keep all their data up to date on all the different platforms because you've got you've got Google, you've got Facebook places, you've got TripAdvisor, you've got all of it. And, and you know, someone like Starbucks, for example, I don't know how many tar Starbucks are. I mean, they're like worldwide, probably three or four Starbucks every day opening and closing. Yeah, that's impossible to manage in title by yourself. Someone's got to get that data because someone's got to push it out in the right format. Uh, ideally, of course, not just like a, a longitude and latitude, but like a nice picture, the opening hours, all these kinds of things. Uh, it's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I remember the um, a while ago, like 10 years ago, while Simple Geo was still a thing, somebody very proudly announcing that like they'd invented this this brand new kind of geocoding service that was basically Simple Geo, but for Bournemouth, which if, if for our international audience is like one not particularly major city in the UK. And it's like, yeah, I've, I've got this uh, service that's basically a data set of every single restaurant in Bournemouth that I bought off someone. And so my, my business is that I put that on a map. Yeah, I mean, no disrespect to the great people of Bournemouth, but uh, the, there are players who take that approach uh, in, in the terms of they focus only on a certain country and they try to be really the best at just that country. Um, and, and, you know, that can work. And obviously there is a big advantage to having that local knowledge. And, and, but, you know, many people writing software are trying to build platforms that can be used globally or, or in multiple markets. So for them, it's probably better to... It can be a challenge to work with all these different small individual players in the different geographies. So and that's also one of the advantages that we try to provide is that we aggregate these different open data sets. So some countries are quite progressive in releasing the governmental data and things like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got to pay quite a lot for UK data, right? Like the Royal Mail has loads of amazing data, but they keep that under lock and key. Or is OpenStreetMap replacing that or supplementing that in some way? Yeah, the, the the situation in the UK has gotten a bit better. There is um, open data from the Ordnance Survey. I, again, there are restrictions. You know, it's not it's not always. You know, I think there's a delay. There's a six month delay until it's published or whatever. Um, yeah, again, the 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 situation in the UK has its own level of insanity. So, um, but but nevertheless, the 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 tide is definitely moving in the direction of more openness and more sharing of data and. Um, and so we try to ride that, that tide, ride that wave and aggregate it all and make it simple for people to use. It's encouraging to see that products like this can be so well supported and, and obviously so well used. Um, one of the things that really stands out on your site as you kind of browse as a potential user of uh, OpenCage is that uh, you support maybe the largest list of uh, client library SDKs that I've ever seen. Uh, I, and on your site, I think it says something like 30 plus languages and it's everything you could imagine, Erlang and Go and JavaScript and PHP and all these things. Um, that's that's pretty impressive. H how does that come about? How do you end up supporting all these different languages? Well, we built it up over time. Um, some of them are obviously when we started, we, you know, we had the the languages that we use internally and and uh, some of the more popular languages. Um, but basically, we are, are standing offer to anyone. So so to you, dear listener, is if you can write an SDK for our API, um, which, which actually our API is really not that complex. It, you know, we have one endpoint and, and a few optional parameters as a REST API. Um, anyway, if you write an SDK in a language that we don't yet have, or we will gladly pay you, or, or an integration with, um, you know, different CMS systems or what, any type of software, um, get in touch. And, and as long as you open source it, we will list it, we will pay you. We will we will do a blog post where we give you full credit. We don't we don't try to claim 
any credit for it. Um, we want, obviously, as many SDKs and things as possible. So a lot of people have taken us up on that over the years. Um, and, and yeah, it's worked yeah, out well. Yeah, there's quite a few. And, and some of those, some of those are, are actually quite active projects. I mean, you know, we, obviously, it's not possible for us to know every single language. So it, it, we rely on the community for some of these other languages. And, but but it's, it's worked out. I mean, people are using them. Th that being said, I do think, as I said, our, our API, we, we make an effort to keep it as simple as possible, have very few changes. Um, sure. And, and so in that regard, it's, it's, it's a more stable API than perhaps, you know, others that, that have been featured here. On yeah, show. this is really cool. I was just looking at the list of providers and I noticed that um, Geocode PHP has built a driver for it. So that's William Durand. It's, um, it, that package is a big deal in the PHP community. And I really like that they have built a provider for it. So it's kind of a generic interface with different um, plugins on the back end. And I was just looking at it going, man, uh, Geocode PHP is getting 300 downloads a month. No, it's not. Your your provider is getting 300,000 downloads a month. <laughs> so just that plugin, yeah. that's massive. Well, yeah. So so there are many of these kind of aggregator libraries in, in almost every language yeah. has one like that. Um, it's a double-edged sword. And what I would say is that uh, on the one hand, obviously there are a lot of people who don't, they want geocoding, but they don't want to pay for geocoding. Right. <laughs> so they, they use a library like that and they just go through them all. But um, the bigger problem is they, usually when you use an aggregator library like that, you're getting kind of the least common denominator of all the oh, services. Yeah, so right? It has to provide yeah. a kind of standard interface. So, so all these different useful data annotations that we provide typically get lost. Like the, the, the it may not provide a way to access those and interface with those. So obviously we try to promote our own SDKs, which we have more control over and where we can really make sure it's, it's fitting our, our API. But you know, if that's how we're not dogmatic and they're trying to force anyone in, you know, anyone who wants to use our API, they're, they're welcome to it, whichever way they want. Um, and and we'll do our best to document that and present that but um yeah there there is a lot of demand for geocoding uh, the most typical use case is someone just has a database of addresses they want to stick on a map uh, and that may range from you know 50 addresses to you know 50,000 addresses one of the big challenges we face is it's difficult to convert those people into customers um, yeah so right. They, they probably don't want to pay yeah. on an ongoing basis or don't think they should pay at all to, you know, put a pin in a map somewhere at that point. I, I mean, one, one, I've made this joke before, but um, we offer a free trial. So we understand people need to test our service. And so you can sign up for an API key. It takes about one minute. And then that API key, you're on a free trial. And with that, you can do 2,500 API requests a day, which I think is more than enough for people to test. One challenge we face is somehow there's some sort of thing that happens to software developers with their vision when they read our documentation is that they go, they go blind to the word trial. Mm. They think we're offering a free service. Yeah, yeah. Okay, they, 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 they don't see that. And we do not offer a free service. We offer a free trial. <laughs> so, and then, you know, so if someone's using my service every single day, after a couple of weeks, obviously, you know, we notice it. We have scripts that catch it. And I read to them, I'm like, look, you're obviously depending on my service. So, you know, if you're going to depend on my service, I, I, I need to be compensated in some way. Of course. 
Yeah, I think I've been I've been guilty of that a bit in the past. Like the amount of time I've spent doing like really creative caching and all these other like really cheeky things to keep the rate limiting down on services when I probably would have been better off just paying for it. Like <laughs> I've definitely done that. It's just something about the developer mindset that's like we will not throw twenty bucks a month at it. We will throw one dev, you know, a hundred dev hours at it a month instead. That's much more value for money. <laughs> yes, yes. So it's it is frustrating. I mean. Eh. You know, the, some people, you know, I, I politely contact them and say, hey, look, you've been, you know, every day for the month, you've hit the free trial limit. Maybe it's time to find customer and they say, oh, thanks. You know, and then, but obviously some people upgrade and some people stop or whatever. Those people don't bother me as much as we, there are the people who then, you know, try to sign up a hundred times and things like that. And it's so, <laughs> I, it's so annoying because it's like, guys, we've been doing this for eight years. Do you think you're the first person we've seen who would like, thought to put a plus on their email address and and to trick you know like come on well, guys i like that you on. have monitoring system that's so, like capable of spotting all this yeah, <laughs> good observability we have a lot of different systems to try to nudge people to become customers uh, you know so it, that that is i have to say one of the most frustrating parts about the business is that we provide in my opinion a a, a good service at a very reasonable price uh, you know and we, and we well documented and and we do quite a lot to give back to the community, but the, but the open data community and the open source community and sponsor projects and sponsor events and everything. And then you have people who are just like, can't be bothered to, you know, pay us, as you say, $20 to, to help on their project. It's, that, that does burn you out after a while. Well, this is a problem too that has existed in map making, at least for as long as maps have been a thing, right? And I feel like the the grand tradition of map making is to include paper towns in your uh, your print maps, right? Which is like a fake location on a map so that if I, uh, someone copies my map and they see this town that doesn't exist on their map, I know they copied specifically from right. me. Uh, so maybe the open cage answer is to just start filling uh, SDK responses with fake uh, data after a while and, you know, slowly... Well, well with that... that what we do do eventually, I mean, after many warnings and things, we eventually just start returning random results to people. Oh, yeah, kind of sure, sure. There database. you go. So, yeah. And, and we, we, I mean, we tell them ahead of time, we're like, look, dude, I've asked you politely, you know, five or six times to become a customer. But it, it, like, if you, you know, I, at this point, I can't help you anymore. That's better than my suggestion. Um, I was going to just start returning one, two, three, butt street. Everything is but something. No, we do. We do actually true random results so that they probably won't even notice it until much later when they actually need to rely on that data. Oops. And, and that's, you know, revenge is a dish best served cold. Brilliant. So, I like the kill switch. <laughs> yeah, that, that's one challenge of running a freemium service. Sure. I, I will say that, that we do. It does get a bit frustrating at times. But, but by and large, many people, um, you know, they see the value in what we're providing and, and, become happy satisfied customers and and it's great yeah so let's talk about what else you're working on ed uh we talked a little bit uh, before the show about geomob do you want to tell us a little bit about that yeah so um you know we 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 mentioned briefly there there's a whole world of interesting things going on in the geospatial space uh, you know weird uh, weird stories and weird anomalies and um but also a, a whole lot of innovation i mean there's a massive amount of innovation and so for the last 15 years now, I've run an event in London. It started as it was kind of a meetup of geospatial developers and it's called Geomob. And we, we meet up once a quarter or so in the evening, a couple of people give talks about their projects and then we go to the pub and people can hang out and, you know, have a raging debate about whether England is a country or a <laughs> sub country or whatever. Um, anyway, so that, that's 
proven quite popular and, and there's a big community around it. And so now we've also expanded to a few other cities in Europe, um, which is great. Uh, and then when the pandemic hit, we obviously couldn't have our events anymore. We started a podcast as well. So, and usually on the podcast, we interview different people who have spoken at the events who talk about their different projects. Um, and it's really interesting. I mean, as I said, there's, there's, there's just been a wave of innovation unleashed by, I would say a couple of things. One, uh, first of all, um, OpenStreetMap, making data readily available to everyone. Secondly, smartphones, you know, now everyone knows exactly where they are all the time. And, and, and you have a, not just, you know, where you are, but you have a, a computer that can do things with that information. And so tons of cool services are being built and tons of interesting um, things about that, around that. And then of course, so we just have all these weird, wonderful, wacky anomalies of the geospatial world. So uh, people give talks about all this. And, and so anyone who is interested should please come along to one of the events or, or listen to the weekly podcast. We're on, we're coming up on episode 200 now. So wow! Um, congratulations. Yeah, yeah so there's exciting. a lot going on. Yeah. So Phil is a, a one particular uh, interesting user of, of geocaching. I feel like, uh, or not geocaching, geocoding. I feel like at some point, uh, Phil, you can uh, enlighten us all on your, your geo journey uh, somewhere along the way. You might, might be a good guest for the yeah. show there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at the moment, I'm, at the moment, I'm mostly just putting like trees on a map. I've just got, you know, we're planting a hot thousands of trees. I mean, God, we're doing 8,000 in a week soon. So we're doing a lot of tree planting. Um, and we, for many of those projects, have to take a photograph of where the tree is and get that on a map. And some people have told me that I should put all the trees on OpenStreetMap because there are layers for that sort of thing. There are people who do that, yeah. There are people who tag individual trees, of course, with the you know the scientific genus and all that. And, and um, yeah. Quirkus, we can, can do it. Um, yeah, the... Um, trouble with ours is that it's kind of like a proprietary data set in that like people pay us for those for that tree data so if i then shove it onto OpenStreetMap, then they they those people didn't need to pay me to plant those trees and i lose all my funding <laughs> so at some point when when the woodland is a bit grown and like we can kind of you know tag the mature trees and and then the woodland becomes quite lovely that that's something i'll probably do but yeah there's all sorts of other weird stuff we've got to start doing like we're looking at um, various um, open weather API to see how much rainfall they're getting so we can kind of preempt which ones are going to struggle and go water them and looking at what soil types there are so that we can try and plant um, plant clay soil earlier in the season um, before Christmas so that it has more time to like mush closed and all this kind of weird online mapping data stuff we're trying to munch together in our own platform. We had a very, very cool last, uh, cool talk last summer at Geomob in London. This guy, he works for um, an agricultural technology company. And check this out. So they fly the drone over a field. And the way it works is, so they're growing cabbages. And the supermarket will not take the cabbage if it's too big or if it's too small. Because if it's too big, it will clog up the, you know, the, the conveyor belt. Supermarkets are not if destroying it's too small, agriculture. <laughs> right. So, so, well, so, if, but if the, if the cabbage head is too small, then, you know, no one will buy it. Okay. So it needs to be exactly within some parameters. So they fly the drone over the field as the cabbages are, are, you know, growing. And then they use the, the photo analysis to target every individual head of cabbage and, and you, you know, do a prediction of like, this one is going to, you know, hit the growth size or not. And, and then based on that, they target, you know, how much water, how much fertilizer, how, you know, hi hyper precise. I mean, it was amazing. 
Um, and, and it really was, you know, each individual, so it was about taking all these different technologies and kind of chaining them together. Uh, and, and as a result, they're able to be much, much more efficient in, in the watering and the use of, of fertilizers, pesticides, things like that. So it was a great, great talk. Um, and, and that's what I mean as an example of some of the things happening around geospatial. Um, I mean, there are, of course, lots of consumer applications, but, but the real power is coming more and more in the combination with, um, you know, tools like earth observation. You know, now it used to be, in, you know, it used to be a very rare thing that you would get an aerial photograph of a place. Now you can basically target, you know, you can purchase a satellite photo of anywhere, you know, like put in your credit card and have it immediately and start doing analysis on it and things like that. And so this is really quite cool. Yeah, this, there's a lot loads of really on. cool stuff happened in that space. I mean, specifically your cabbage thing. Um, I, it's really funny. I feel two halves of me kind of being pulled in two different directions with that. There's the kind of, I spend a lot of time on farms with farmers and they're just fed up with all the nonsense they're having to be put through all the grants and all the kind of demand for tech and change and supermarkets trying to lowball them at every single point so they have to fire everyone and use massive machines and then everyone shouts at them for using too many emissions um but then i also kind of feel the environmentalist that's like let's be more efficient with everything that we do and get the best right. um you know results and also kind of like yeah the, the the techie of just like we could totally fix this with a drone and some algorithms like all of those things are competing in my head right now to be like, this is a genius idea and it's fucking stupid. Get it out of there. Fun in here right now. I mean, one of one of the big use cases of geocoding is, as I said, is vehicle tracking. Yeah. And a lot of that is cargo, cargo tracking. And, you know, I mean, there's this amazing stat that like, you know, we we produce, I don't, I don't know what it is. It's like 2x the amount of food that the world needs, right? It's just we throw half of yep. it away. Right, because it because it's harvested at the wrong time, or you know, it rots on the way to the into the store, and all these kind of things. So maybe by using all these different technologies along the way, we could be much more efficient. And um, yeah, for sure. I mean, the replacing replacing whole field spraying of pesticide with um, drones. Some of them by air. Some of them are trundling along like some little early prototype Star Wars robot. But they're just kind of rolling around, spraying weeds that pop up because they can see them from space yeah. and drone instead of just spraying the whole damn thing and killing off the entire river and everything in it. Um, so yeah, that sort of stuff is definitely going to help us, you know, continue to exist as a, on this planet, which is nice. I, I hope so. I mean, as I really, it is pretty fascinating to be a member of this industry, to see, to see it really come together and the, and the, 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 the making the data available, making the devices, devices have become much more cheap and much more robust. It's really cool. And, and, and then you add things like drones and you add aerial imagery and things like that to it. It's, it, it's, it's an exciting time in geospatial. Yeah, it feels like there will be no shortage of things to keep you busy for the uh, immediate and far future, uh, Ed. Um, it's been super fantastic having you join us on the show today. Um, th thanks so much for being here. Um, before we let you go, I'm curious, where is the best place for people to find you online and where can they go to get started with OpenCage? Well, anyone, anyone, of course, who needs geocoding should go to our website, which is, it's not opencage.com, it's opencagedata.com. Um, but if you just search for opencage geocoding, you'll, you'll find us. Um, yeah, if you're interested in geospatial stuff, come along to Geomob or, or listen to the podcast. That's thegeomob.com. For me personally, my, my, my surname is, of course, is, is a bit difficult for spelling, but, but let's go for it. My, my website is fryfogel.com. Maybe you can get that in the show Absolutely, notes. Absolutely, yeah. Um, in terms of social media, the best um, best place is Mastodon. I've actually made the switch to Mastodon. So 
right on me too um uh, also linkedin you can you can ping me on linkedin as well if it's if it's if you like so exactly how i feel about linkedin anyone anyone who wants to get in touch with nice so. yeah you'll you'll notice when i'm starting to feel a bit broke because i'll start posting on linkedin more that's the place i go to when i like need a job or need to refresh my cv <laughs> i forget that people use that as a thing otherwise but um yeah cool well i'll, I'll find you on mastodon because i'm on there now doing a bit more over there um it's good you usually see me just post some really like um very short bullshit on twitter like some very little mini shit post and then mastodon there's more space so you actually get a thoughtful piece instead i quite like that longer form well, one quick note on that, you know, so OpenCage also has a Mastodon account and we we do a weekly thread about what we call geo weirdness. So hashtag geo weirdness, where we talk about some of the, you know, we profile different countries and talk about all the different, you know, wackiness of, you know, enclaves and exclaves and border disputes. And um, so actually this week for, for for our British listeners, in honor of the upcoming coronation, we had one about all the remaining British overseas territories like Pitcairn Island and and um, Gibraltar and uh, uh, places nice. like this. Nice. So, I am following that right now. I am very interested in map weirdness. Okay. Yeah, no, we have quite a lot. We, we, we've done, I don't know, 20 different countries or so now. Every country has its own weird edge cases. So Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, guys, it's been great to be on the show. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thanks for joining. Cheers. Take care. Bye. Bye.